This is Ernie Hood, president of Science Communicators of North Carolina, or Skunk. Our group, American Scientist Magazine, and the Research Triangle Park chapter of Sigma Xi, are the co-organizers of the American Scientist Pizza Lunch series of lunchtime lectures held monthly at the Sigma Xi headquarters in North Carolina. In our Pizza Lunch podcasts, we interview scientists who have appeared at Pizza Lunch events. In this podcast, American Scientist Associate Editor Katie Burke interviews Dr. Sukanta Basu, an Associate Professor in the Department of Marine, Earth, and Atmospheric Sciences at North Carolina State University. His Pizza Lunch talk was titled, Addressing a Few Emergent Issues in Wind Power Meteorology. His field of study is called Boundary Layer Meteorology, which addresses some of the many challenges facing the widespread use of wind power. Dr. Burke first asked Dr. Basu why we should all be more conscious of and interested in wind energy. Wind energy is extremely important for a variety of reasons. And first of all, that wind energy is growing around the world, including the, in the United States, at a phenomenal rate. And this is due to a couple of reasons. First of all, that fossil fuels caused global climate change. And wind energy, among various other renewable energy, can be a solution or to avoid this type of global climate change issues. At the, on the other hand, uh, the wind energy can also provide the job, new green energy jobs. It can also uh, help us in terms of reduction in carbon dioxide emission. It can also reduce the the water consumption that's usually can be reduced by about 18 percent by having wind energy if we had 20 percent of wind energy installation in this country. Why is water used so much in normal uh, traditional sources of energy today? Mainly in the coal-fired power plants Mm -hmm. you see for the cooling purposes the water is used tremendously so if you have wind energy that there is almost no usage of water for the wind energy generation. So you basically save on the order of 17, 18%. Mm -hmm. The other impact actually in the, over the US Great Plains, you can use wind energy to desalinate water. So you can have a positive impact that instead of uh, salty water, uh, you can have much more cleaner water by using wind energy during nighttime where, when you have the peak hours. So you mentioned that wind power is growing. Um, and can you talk about where wind power is growing the fastest or the most and why? Wind power in this country is growing mostly over the U.S. Great Plains. That means the eastern side of the Rockies. And so if you look at in the last five, six years, the most of the wind farm installations were in the north, the panhandle of Texas, in Minnesota, Iowa, North Dakota, these are the areas we have seen a tremendous growth in wind energy. And uh, the reason behind it that there is an atmospheric phenomena that's called low level jets that happens about 100 meter to about two, 300 meter above ground level. These jets provide tremendous amount of wind resource and that happens mostly over the this over the US Great Plains and that has resulted in this 
uh, huge development of wind farms over the Great Plains. So what about other countries? How do they compare in growth to the U.S.? Growth in the wind energy development has been tremendous across all the continents, so mostly in Asia and in Europe, other than North and uh, South America. So in, in Asia, most of the growth in the last three years have been due to Ch China's involvement. China has installed tremendous amount of uh, wind farms and uh, special mostly in the Xinjiang province and other parts of southern China. In Europe, the, they have been uh, installing wind farms for a long time, especially in Denmark, Germany, Spain. They have, for example, Denmark has more than 20% of energy penetration by wind, wind energy. So this is going on for a long term. Now they are leading in terms of offshore wind energy. Going back to how wind power is changing in the U.S., how do you expect this exponential growth that's happening to affect our, our future just in, in the United States alone? If this uh, growth continues and by 2030 we are hoping for that 20% of the entire energy generation could be by wind energy. We are actually ahead of the, this projected mark at this point. But if that really happens, as I mentioned before, that we could have more green energy jobs, less dependence on the fossil fuels, less import of oils from other countries, and, so, and also we can save quite billions of gallons of water. So these are all positive impacts. So mechanically and structurally, how are wind turbines used to generate power from wind changing? Over the years, the major change in the wind turbine design has been in the size of these turbines. So right now the turbines are typically, they have hub height of above 100 meters, usually 120 meters or so, and the rotor diameter, they are on the order of 100, 120 meters. And in the future, this can grow up to the hub height of 200 meters or so for 10 megawatt wind turbines. So this is just one aspect. Also in terms of the blade design, most of the current generation, um, the wind turbines, they are something called pitch controlled. That means they are the turbine blades, they with increasing wind speed, they try to rotate themselves. So at beyond very high wind, like 25 meter per second, the wind turbines will stop themselves. So they cannot, so high wind events will not impact uh, the wind turbines. So it, they will shut down. So these are the new features that the current generation wind turbines have. They are also trying to have new wind turbines which will not require any gearbox. So these are called direct drive technology. So if you have a gearbox, most of the wind turbine failures are related to the failure of the gearboxes. And these are expensive to repair because these are a typical gearbox is about 50,000 pounds. So you have to bring it down the, the, to do the repair and so on. So if you people are researching now to this alternative direct drive technology which will obviate all these issues and the problems that the gearboxes have. You mentioned that uh, the, wind, uh, the wind turbines are, have, 
have changed in height and are predicted to change even double in height, that's huge. Uh, why? So the simple answer is you usually have higher wind as you go away from the surface. So there are two effects you can see that when you have the larger blades or rotors, you are going to capture the, the entire area is going to be the pi r square. That means the area is proportional to the square of the radius. So if you have larger blades, you capture more wind. And at the same time, as you go higher up, you have very stronger wind. And as I mentioned, the low-level jets, they, call, they are most, much stronger than at this 100 to 100 meter high compared to the lower height winds. How do people decide where to put the wind turbines? Usually, the, you can find wind maps that are produced by the industry and sometimes validated by the National Renewable Energy Lab. And these are the maps that provide the class, different classes of wind at different locations and a height of 50 meter to 90 meter height above ground level. So based on this information, you can select a region where to put the wind farm. However, uh, once you have selected the wind farm location to put individual wind turbines, that will require something called microsighting. In other words, these individual turbines cannot be on lands that have, let's say, cannot be wasteland, cannot be very close to some water bodies, or cannot be close to residential houses, it, you have to select them so that you minimize the electrical transmission lines and so on. So it's a lot of geographic information systems based information goes into the dictating where the turbines can be placed when once you decide which region you're going to put in. So for making these maps that predict where there are going to be higher winds at the 50 to 90 meter height level, uh, how accurate are those maps? So the, typically uh, the industry uses something called numerical weather prediction models to create these wind maps. So there are models which are known as like WARF model. Uh, MM5 model. These are used to create these maps with a resolution of between 2 to 5 kilometer. And because of the physical parameterizations are not very accurate in numerical models, we tend to have uh, errors in terms of the mean annual wind speed. And higher we go up, these errors are typically increased. So the problem is the models have not been, these models have not been validated very well for high wind, the higher wind conditions because usually most of the observational uh, stations that we have, they provide data for 10 meter uh, wind and other meteorological variables. So models have been validated for lower levels where they are tuned for those conditions, but for these unknown areas, the uncharted uncharted territories above let's say 90 meter 100 meter they tend to have underestimate the wind speed and the amount of underestimation uh, it can also overestimate certain region but usually it underestimate especially at nighttime condition it depends on the typical uh, time of the day 
like uh, what time at night and it calls also site specific so you will i won't give a number associated with it but usually it could be between 10 percent to 30 percent 40 percent error you can see so with with this error that comes with the model predictions uh, what are some examples of the effects of of these higher error margins um, when you are dealing with wind speeds at 100 meter heights but you are basing it on information that's at heights that are much lower mainly what happens is that when you are developing a wind farm you need to provide the uh, bankable wind data and for that information usually people will have uh, wind observation for a short time period usually six months or so so that information can provide up to 60 meter or 80 meter some validation of your model output but if you are extrapolating beyond that because if you realize even current generation wind turbines if they are hub height is at 120 meters and tip of the turbine is reaching about 180 or 190 meter you need to know this entire area of wind speed which you really don't have even for observational data so the bottom line becomes when you make a wind farm that you expect to have let's say 1000 megawatt production that's a no, the nameplate capacity you might see that under prediction the underperformance when you it's operating under condition maybe because you might have overestimated the wind speed or it could be the other way around so the the main problem is the all these wind farms they have a very small profit margin so if you make these large amount of errors that could resulted into the negative economic impact basically the wind farms might not make any profit so how could we reduce that error margin how could researchers make better models so that we have higher profit wind farms well there are two ways to tackle this problem one we need better models in terms of better physics representation so a lot of research is going on in terms of having improved turbulence parameterizations in numerical models also the models are becoming finer and finer with the petascale modeling so right now we are looking at running this type of models with sub kilometer resolution so a couple of hundred meters or even finer resolution so increasing resolution will lead to higher accuracy we can also try to assimilate data some public domain observational data to into the numerical model to make them more accurate one other aspect would be to have very high quality observational data for model validation so if you have more and more uh, hub height like 90 100 meter observational data platforms which are available we can validate our model and make the physics better even though we can do all these things uh, to improve the models the models will never become perfect representation of nature there will always be uncertainty so one way to address this issue would be to have something called ensemble forecasting in other words you don't run one particular configuration but you basically do several different con model physics configuration 
run these various models and then find out what's your most probable outcome as well as what's the uncertainty bound of your prediction. What problems still need to be addressed to implement more wind power successfully in the U.S.? So there are various uh, things that needs to be addressed. First of all, we do need to have better uh, infrastructure in terms of observational platforms that we don't have enough of those in this country. So tall towers, the mobile platforms and offshore platforms, those needs to be uh, uh, available, made available by the federal government and or the private industry. The second is we have a severe shortage of workforce in this country. So we need to educate more and more younger generation people from K-12 to all the way the graduate programs to be successful in terms of becoming new generation of scientists and engineers of wind energy. In terms of legal issues, there are, for example, in the state of North Carolina, you do not have a, there is a law that's called REACH law that prohibits uh, installation of tall structures in the western part of the state where you have most of the wind resource near the Appalachian area. If that law can be repealed, then we can have a lot of generation in the state that will, of course, fuel the economy of North Carolina. There is also issues like there is something called Jones Act that will prohibit the, uh, in some way, that prohibits offshore wind development because all the this law requires to have wind farms, offshore wind farms in federal waters, you need to be using the U.S. flag carrying vessels and we do not have this type of specialized vessels at this time in this country that can be used for offshore wind in installations. So we cannot rent or borrow from some other country because Jones law will prohibit that. So we need to have better uh, dock facility, better harbors and so on and we have to uh, create these type of vessels ourselves so that that would be the only alternative at this point. So you mentioned that um, it's important to get the youth involved, that K through 12, as well as graduate students. Um, what are some ways to make wind power and wind en energy issues fun or educational or in interesting uh, for K through 12 students? Well, there are a lot of activities in class as well as in summer school one could do. Um, there is a really interesting website called kidwin.org that provides a lot of these ideas for teachers and uh, even um, for organizing summer schools and have um, lecture materials and so on that are available from this website. And one could um, also uh, do, for example, uh, summer camp that we used to, uh, I organized and co-organized several summer, summer camp at my former institution, Texas Tech University, and that could, that's one way of getting the youth involved. And these students were taught the various aspects of wind. We gave them tours of all the facilities that we have in terms of measuring wind, as well as the, how the wind can impact structures. We, the students can uh, create toy wind turbines 
and compete with each other in terms of producing uh, who can produce more wind, which aesthetically, which wind turbine looks the best and so on. Thank you Sukanta Basu for coming to talk to us today. Thanks for having me. This Pizza Launch podcast was produced by American Scientist Magazine, the magazine published by Sigma Xi, the Scientific Research Society. The music is Spot by Arden Octopus, courtesy of Medios Music Alley. Thanks for listening.